The final speaker for the program is Dr. Alan Lipton, whose specific area of clinical research interest in breast cancer is the bone. In June, we heard an exciting clinical trial report from an Austrian study demonstrating, as have several prior trials, a reduction in cancer recurrence utilizing an adjuvant bisphosphonate, in this case, zoledronic acid. However, the focus of my discussion with Dr. Lipton for this program was bone and metastatic breast cancer, and to begin, he provided an overview of this critical area. Well, breast cancer is a very common disease in our society. It's been estimated that this year there'll be somewhere between 200 and 225,000 new patients diagnosed with breast cancer. And the numbers I carry around is that of the newly diagnosed patients, somewhere between 40 and 50 percent of them over time will develop metastatic disease. So again, that's probably 75, 80,000 women who will develop metastatic disease. Of the women first diagnosis of breast cancer, about 30% will have bone metastasis. But of the women who are diagnosed with metastatic disease over their remaining lifetime, about three-quarters of them at some point will develop bone metastasis. So that's a really big problem. The overall numbers have been shown of people in this country who will develop bone metastasis from any primary cancer breast, lung, thyroid, prostate is about 400,000 new patients with the diagnosis of bone metastasis here. So it's a very big problem, a very underserved problem, as you know, until recent years. 400,000 people a year. Yeah. Amazing. And what are we seeing in terms of the clinical face of metastatic disease to the bone and breast and other cancers today compared to prior to the bisphosphonates? Those of us like yourself and myself who began our careers prior to the widespread use of bisphosphonates saw a different range of problems. It was not uncommon for us to have a patient with hypercalcemia malignancy, several of them on the oncology inpatient service. Well, now you almost rarely see a patient in hospital with hypercalcemia. It was not uncommon to have a consult daily, every other day with a pathologic fracture, a patient over on the orthopedic service who would have a pathologic fracture due to metastatic cancer to bone. Now it's very quite uncommon to have pathologic fractures. Need for surgery to bone, need for radiation therapy to bone are all significantly decreased with bisphosphonates. So if you look at the placebo arm of the clinical trials with bisphosphonates, in breast cancer, the average patient had one skeletal-related event, that is a fracture, need for surgery, need for radiation therapy to bone. They had one SRE every two or three months. The average lung cancer or kidney cancer patient had one skeletal-related event every three or four months, and the average prostate cancer patient had one skeletal-related event every six months. Well, now it's much less frequent. It's maybe a third to a half less frequent than those. So the bisphosphonates have revolutionized the complications that we as oncologists and you as oncology nurses deal with on a daily basis. Can you talk a little bit right now about what the guidelines are in terms of the use of bisphosphonates, which bisphosphonates, and also about complications of bisphosphonates? The breast cancer guidelines were first published in 2003, and the guidelines say that bisphosphonates should be instituted at the first diagnosis of lytic bone metastasis. Which bisphosphonate one uses is up to the discretion of the treating physician. In this country, we have the options of pimidronate or zoledronic acid. We don't have clodronate. We don't have ibandronate approved for that. But having said that, if you look at the control clinical trial in breast cancer myeloma of Zomata versus pimidronate, there was a 20% advantage 
of total events, events over time, the so-called Anderson-Gill multiple event analysis, favoring zoledronic acid over permitronate. So I think the data very strongly favors zoledronic acid over permitronate in breast cancer. There are lots of questions that come up as to should you start bisphosphonates on a patient who has no pain, who has lytic bone destruction. I think the answer retrospectively, Luis Costa from Lisbon, Portugal, did a study looking at the benefit of zoledronic acid starting it when patients had clinical pain or when patients did not have clinical pain, and the benefit was, if anything, greater starting it before clinical pain occurred. So I think that right now at the first diagnosis of bone metastasis or certainly lytic bone metastasis, you ought to start a bisphosphonate, and I personally favor solidronic acid. The myeloma guidelines have been recently reissued by ASCO and the guidelines committee, and those guidelines state that patients should be treated with multiple myeloma when bone metastasis are diagnosed, and the guidelines say that the treating physician can use either zoledronic acid or pomidronate with equal efficacy. That's probably correct in the overall study. If one goes back and looks at the study, it was not a large number of multiple myeloma patients. There were 200 myeloma patients. There was a slight advantage favoring zoledronic acid, 7%, but it was not statistically significant. So I guess on evidence-based medicine, one can use either bisphosphonate for the treatment of multiple myeloma. What about side effects and toxicities of bisphosphonates? As you know, Neil, the side effects are acute phase reactions that occur in a third to a half the patients after starting intravenous bisphosphonate. They're usually pretty well self-contained, easily treated with Tylenol. They disappear within a day or two or three. The more serious complications are that over time, any bisphosphonate given in a high enough dosage over a short enough period of time will cause renal abnormalities, either glomerular abnormalities or proximal renal tubular abnormalities. So one needs to do monitoring of serum creatinine or creatinine clearance before each dose of bisphosphonate. And if one encounters well, 20% of patients in the clinical trials over time of either pomidronate or zoledronic acid had bumps in their serum creatinine and needed to have a change in the either timing of which the bisphosphonate was given or a decrease in the dose of bisphosphonate. It's the rare patient who develops significant renal toxicity if one monitors appropriately. And the final complication that's gotten a lot of publicity in recent years is osteonecrosis of the jaw, which occurs in... Most of the studies are retrospective, and there are very few prospective studies, but the incidence of ONJ at Memorial Sloan Kettering is about 0.6%. Retrospectively, the incidence at MD Anderson is 0.8% in all comers, a little bit higher in myeloma than in breast cancer. But then if you go into literature, you could go to Brian Dury's review, which showed an incidence of ONJ in 7-8%, and there are several reports from Athens, Greece, from Demopolis and... Evangelist Turpos reporting an incidence of ONJ in the low teens in patients with multiple myeloma. Now, the caveat is that in many of those retrospective series, there was dental surgery done prior to the administration of a bisphosphonate before we recognized that you should get that out of the way, and that's a no-no. And there was significant dental infections, periodontitis, in a large number of those patients. Actually, I had the opportunity to have dinner with Dr. Turpos at a meeting not too long ago, And he tells me that once they've gotten 
away from dental surgery, aggressive dental surgery, once they've gotten the infections under control, they're coming into a much lower incidence of ONJ in their patient population. But the true incidence, Neil, will only come out of prospective randomized studies, which are ongoing at the present time. So that if you look at the Azure study, which is an adjuvant zoledronic acid study being conducted in the United Kingdom by Rob Coleman, Rob has reported seven out of 3,000 patients at the end of the year have had ONJ. Well, that's below 1%. So I think the true incidence will probably end up somewhere like the Memorial RMD Anderson experience around 1%. Now, the question really is, is it being caused by the bisphosphonate or is it being caused by many of the other therapies that we do or some combination thereof? If you go back in the literature, Chemotherapy alone has been reported associated with ONJ, radiation therapy, the jaws associated with ONJ, steroids, stem cell transplant, diabetes, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis have all been reported, an infection certainly, with ONJ. So we have to see what falls out in the prospective studies. Can you talk a little bit about exactly what's happening when you get ONJ and how bisphosphonates work and how they would contribute to ONJ? The pathogenesis of ONJ is unknown, but there are a couple of prominent theories. The first theory is that the jaw is a very dynamic structure, especially the mandible, and we always are getting infections. We're always remodeling our jaw, and you need osteoclast function to remodel and to heal in the jaw. So one hypothesis is that if you inhibit osteoclast with a bisphosphonate, you're not going to get healing in of the jaw when it gets infected or when it does its remodeling process. And can you explain what the difference is between osteoclast and osteoblast? Yeah. Bone in normal individuals is a very dynamic structure, although you wouldn't think of it. You think of bone as being solid and very static, but bone is always turning over, especially when we sleep. When we go to bed at night, our skeleton is remodeling and turning over, and that helps keep the strength and the integrity of the skeleton by the remodeling. And the way bone remodels is that there's a cell called the osteoclast that sort of like Pac-Man is chewing the surface of bone and destroying it, and then the surface of bone is replaced and replenished by the osteoblast, which lays down new bone. So it's a balance. Normal bone is a balance between osteoclast destruction of bone and osteoblast healing into the bone. And when you get into pathologic processes such as osteoporosis in a postmenopausal woman or in steroid-induced osteoporosis or in many of our cancer therapies such as androgen deprivation therapy and aromatase inhibitor therapies, the balance is tipped in favor of bone destruction or increased osteoclast function. So it's increased osteoclast function that we're trying to diminish in patients with bone meds or patients in aromatase inhibitor or androgen deprivation-treated bone loss. So bisphosphonates inhibit the osteoclast. They're very strong poisons, if you will. They inhibit osteoclast maturation. They induce apoptosis in osteoclast when the osteoclast ingests the bisphosphonate in the bone marrow microenvironment. So one of the theories going back to ONJ is that ONJ is caused by non-healing in of a bone that might be infected or turning over because of diminished osteoclast activity by the bisphosphonate. The other prominent theory, which I think will be very important in the future, is that it's felt that you need blood vessels, you need angiogenesis to heal in bone. Normal bone marrow has a lot of angiogenic activity, and if you inhibit the angiogenic activity, you might not heal in the bones, and bisphosphonates 
have been shown by Dr. Santini in Italy to be anti-angiogenic. So there are two mechanisms, either osteoclast inhibition or angiogenic inhibition, may lead to the susceptibility of bone, especially the jawbone, to osteonecrosis. Now, osteonecrosis, the word necrosis means, you know, dead tissue. Is that mm-hmm. essentially what's happening? Yeah, I think so. If you do biopsies, you have dead tissue. So it's kind of like in no blood vessels, necrotic tissue. Necrotic tissue, yeah. What's the usual clinical presentation? So now there are three stages of osteonecrosis of the jaw, less severe, more severe, painful, and finally significant ulcerations that, well, go back to the definition of ONJ, the definition of ONJ, osteonecrosis of the jaw is eight weeks of a non-healing ulcer. That can be painful, it cannot be painful, it can lead to fistula, it cannot lead to fistula. So we now have a staging system of less severe or more severe of ONJ related to pain or the degree of fistula. That's important because not all ONJ is painful and causes great morbidity to patients, but some of it certainly does. And some ONJ will heal spontaneously with conservative measures. I've been told that maybe a third of patients with ONJ will heal spontaneously. But you're left, we've just had four patients at our hospital with ONJ, one or two of them being quite severe. There are some patients who will not heal in those ulcers and have significant morbidity associated with the jaw pain over long periods of time. Are there any ways to prevent or treat it? The prevention of ONJ, the current guidelines are to make sure you send your patient to the dentist to have a good dental examination and to get out of the way any invasive dental procedures before you start the bisphosphonate. So that's extremely important and was not done in a lot of the retrospective studies where patients may have had infections or dental surgeries right up to the time of starting a bisphosphonate. So good dental care, good dental infection, good dental examinations, and any dental surgery out of the way, certainly a month or two before you start a bisphosphonate, will lead to a significantly decreased risk of ONJ. If you encounter a patient who needs dental surgery, then we don't have good solid data, but I think many of us feel that you ought to stop the bisphosphonate for a month or two, get the dental surgery done and out of the way and healed in before you restart the bisphosphonate. And you need at that point to weigh the severity of the bone disease and the risks of the patient of the metastatic bone disease versus the risk of non-healing in. And you know, if you have the luxury of a patient who doesn't have aggressive disease, you might want to wait two or three months to restart the bisphosphonate if you choose to at that time. The other Facets of ONJ are beyond recognition or conservative therapy. And in the days when it was first recognized by Dr. Marx and Dr. Ruggiero, people would operate on these patients, and it's been shown by dental surgeons that operation is not a good thing to do in these patients because they may not heal any. You just may be worsening the situation by aggressive dental surgery. So early diagnosis, preventive dental care, make sure the patients don't have infections. There have been a number of cases of actinomyces that have been masquerading as ONJ, and that would be treatable by antibiotics. So make sure it's not a dental infection, periodontitis, and then conservative treatment if one encounters ONJ. We've learned a lot about it in recent years, Neil. Let's talk a little bit about the strategy of using systemic therapy in metastatic disease in the woman who's just been diagnosed and I guess probably the most common situation is someone who's had prior adjuvant treatment, often adjuvant chemotherapy, sometimes adjuvant hormone therapy, and now has been diagnosed with metastatic disease. And I want to go through your thinking 
based on some of the variables involved, particularly the ER and HER2 status. But first, just to kind of take a step back in terms of what your experience is with the psychosocial issues that occur at first diagnosis of metastasis and how you as an oncologist with your nursing colleagues try to sort of deal with the crisis that these women are facing. I think you use the right word, Neil, in terms of crisis. The news to a woman that she has had breast cancer for a number of years, sometimes many, many years, and now we suddenly have found because of her symptoms, because of testing that we've done, that the cancer has spread to other parts of the body is devastating news to a healthy woman who's living her normal life at that point. And we suddenly told her that her back pain is due to the spread of cancer to bone. The cancer's come back three or four or 10 or 15 or 20 years after we gave her adjuvant therapy. It has now been unsuccessful. And if she asks the question, we have to be honest and tell her that the average lifespan that she has left for her is probably in the order of 30 to 36 months. And that's horrible news, especially to any person younger, 50, 60, or a little bit older, 70, 80, or even 90 years old, you're telling them that they have an incurable advanced disease and they're going to suffer from that disease. So how horrible for the patient and how terrible is it for us to have to give that news to the person, but that's sort of part of our job. Now, how do you support those people? Well, it's the team that does that. The nurse plays a terribly important part. You know, we physicians are busy. We're pushed more and more by either our private practice situation, if you're in private practice, or our administrators, if you're in an academic mode, as I am, to see more and more patients in a shorter time, generate more money for the institution or the practice. So our time is relatively limited. And it frequently falls upon the nurse to spend a little more time with the patient and the family to deal with some of the psychosocial problems that they experience. And it all becomes part of a team. Sometimes the social worker can be an enormous help. Or even more often, it's the family and the people, a support group within the family, the wife certainly, the husband, the children, the relatives who live close by, and most importantly, the clergy people who are enormously valuable in the psychosocial support in any way. So there's no one size that fits all, but any ways that you can see help within the family structure, within the community structure to help the patient, you try to bring on board to help the patient who's been given this terrible news. What do you see in terms of the women who seem to be able to cope with this well, as opposed to women who have major problems dealing with? What are some of the tools available that you see that help patients? Well, in the area in which I practice in central Pennsylvania, I think we're really blessed with very strong support systems. So we have many families that live together in close quarters within the same town or within an hour's drive. And if the family comes, or you'll reach out or your nurse will reach out to other family members and try to see who's available for any amount of time to come and visit mom and dad periodically or to come into the home each day. And that's a big source of support with people who live in relatively small towns or small cities. We also, within central Pennsylvania, have a very strong clergy backup and social support system. So many of the towns have social organizations that will be supportive of the patient. And I find that the local clergy people are extremely valuable. Communities are tight-knit. There's a strong dependence upon the local church or synagogue for help of those individuals. And I find the clergy people, once you begin to interact with them, are extremely willing to go in and help the patient and spend any time talking to them. And that's a big help to most people. But there are still those people, as you well know, 
from your days in practice, Neil, who despite all these people who are trying to help them or the lack of support within certain families, who have enormous trouble dealing with them. And at that point in time, one seeks help from psychiatrists, psychologists, anything to help the people deal with the problems, which those people are much more sophisticated in doing that than I am. What's it like for you to be in this situation? How do you deal with this kind of patient care situation? Well, working within a university medical system is both an advantage and a disadvantage. The disadvantage is that you're a bigger mechanism in that a patient comes into the hospital, they may be interacting with house staff they haven't seen before or fellows they don't know who are rotating through my service at that particular point in time. But eventually, you know, you try to give the patient whatever time they need or whatever time you can have. And the other side of the coin is that you've got a larger mechanism to help the patient so that you can call upon. We've got a wonderful nurse who is a specialist and only deals with the breast cancer patients. And very frequently, because she's such a good person, the patient or the family will call her first to call her in preference to me if I'm busy and has trouble getting them. So we've got an excellent nursing staff to help us. We've got a good social service department right in our medical center. And if you need to, you can call upon the help of the psychiatry people and psychology people or a clergy person right within the building. So in an acute episode, I think we've got really good backup and care. Short of that, my method of dealing with this is no different from any other oncologist in the country. You try to figure out what the patients' resources are to help them and what's was, in the community. I was thinking more about how you deal personally with this, you know, seeing people in tragic situations so frequently. Yeah. Maybe we become a little hardened over the years in that you deal with a lot of bad things and you deal with people who, you know, a patient comes in with a new complaint of bone pain and somebody you treated in the past and now you make a diagnosis of metastatic breast cancer to bone you realize that your efforts in the past have been unsuccessful in helping that patient. That's very sad for the patient. It's very sad for the doctor realizing that your adjuvant therapy didn't work. Now they have metastatic disease and you know the consequences of that. I think we protect ourselves in a lot of different ways through the years. And philosophically, I think is where you're headed, Neil. You know, how do I handle it philosophically? My reaction to that is I try to give the patient the best therapies we know of to prolong their life as long as possible and to make their remaining time as comfortable as possible. So in each patient, you have to make a decision as to can I cure the disease? Well, no, if I can't cure the disease, what can I do to prolong life as long as possible? Or what can I do to keep the patient's quality of life and keep them as functional as long as possible? And you need to tailor psychologically what you can accomplish to help that individual patient. And that's the basis in which you keep going day by day is saying, well, this is the way I can help this individual. I'm going to give it the best I can to help her in whatever ways I can. But having said that, we now have therapies. You mentioned before Herceptin. We now have therapies that decrease the risk of the disease coming back by 50%. You look at the survival rate, the cure rate after the diagnosis of breast cancer, more people are surviving. So I think our therapies have improved a lot of these people significantly and increased the chances of a patient with breast cancer surviving now as opposed to 20, 25 years ago when we all started in this business. So philosophically, you can say, well, we're doing better for the whole patient population. I can give that to my patients, and I'll help the people who are unfortunate and will relapse as much as I can in whatever ways I can in their remaining time. You deal with it. Let's talk about decisions in terms of systemic therapy in the metastatic setting. A lot of this is driven by what the status is of the estrogen receptor and the HER2 receptor. So let's start out with the most common situation, which is the patient who has metastatic disease where it's ER positive and HER2 negative. Mm -hmm. 
when you know that that's the kind of tumor that the patient has, how do you sort through the strategy you're going to use systemically? Let me start answering that, Neil, by saying that you and I began practice in the era before the estrogen receptor, which was discovered and publicized in, I believe, 1965 by Elwood Jensen at the University of Chicago. Now, prior to that time, we were making clinical decisions on time from diagnosis to relapse. Did they relapse before two years? Did they relapse after two years? If they relapsed after two years, we gave them hormone therapy, be it diethylsilvesterol or megacy. <laughs> You're shaking your head to remember those days as well. What we've seen after that is we've seen an enormous explosion in the last 30 to 40 years of biology to help us to subset breast cancer patients. And that is just really beginning to take off in the present era. So in the 60s, we had the discovery of the estrogen receptor. In the 90s, we had the discovery of the HER2 new family of receptors. In recent years, from Charles Peru, we've had breast cancer further subdivided into luminal A, luminal B, triple negative, HER2 new positive. So we're learning that breast cancer is not one disease, but it's a heterogeneous disease. And each disease subtype has its own prognosis. And we're learning that each disease subtype has its own therapies, which will benefit certain patients and not benefit other patients. So this is certainly the thrust of research of the last 20 or 30 years. Now, going back to your question, how do we treat an estrogen receptor positive patient? We have a lot of difficulty, and I've heard on your tapes many of my colleagues in their discussion with you, and that there is some question as to the accuracy of the estrogen receptor test, even though it's been around for 40 years. But I can't improve on that, not being a clinical pathologist. But as a clinician, you deal with the information you're given. So if a patient is diagnosed with ER-positive metastatic disease, immediately that patient becomes a candidate for hormone therapy. And in recent years, the hormone therapy that appears to be most efficacious is aromatase inhibitor treatment. So if the patient has not been on an AI or has been off an AI for one or more years, I would start with an aromatase inhibitor in treatment. Of course, uh, that would be in postmenopausal patients. Yeah, postmenopausal patients. So let's go a little along that line. If this postmenopausal woman either responds for a while and then fails or doesn't respond to an aromatase inhibitor, one has a number of choices. One can then administer now an older drug, tamoxifen. One can go from aromatase inhibitor to Fazlodex, the estrogen down regulator. One can move from one class of aromatase inhibitor to another class of aromatase inhibitor from non-steroidal to a steroidal AI and run the gamut of hormone therapies. And occasionally we get a patient who has very responsive disease to one or two or three hormone manipulations. One might even consider going back at that point to some of the older hormone manipulations. So I've got some people who've gone through three or four hormone treatments, and I'll give them a progestational agent. I'll give them even a male hormone for the fourth or fifth. So we've got four or five lines of hormone therapy for the postmenopausal woman. The premenopausal woman Right now, the standard of treatment for a premenopausal woman with metastatic disease is probably tamoxifen or estrogen ablation by ophorectomy or GnRH agonist. There are a number of studies that you're well aware of that are ongoing at the present time to look at the combination of GnRH agonists and aromatase inhibitors to see if combination treatments with the more modern AIs and estrogen ablation are superior to GnRH agonists or ophorectomy alone. But I think at this point, pending the results of those studies, tamoxifen therapy is probably the first line of defense for treatment of a lady with estrogen receptor positive premenopausal status. If she fails 
or she responds to tamoxifen for a while and then fails, then I begin to think of taking steps to remove ovarian function alone or ovarian function plus an AI at that point. And a lot depends on the pace of disease. If you have galloping disease, then one might be more aggressive in one's therapy, and I would think of combined therapies with estrogen ablation plus an AI at that point. If the disease is more inland, I'd go sequentially and go after the ovaries next and then the AI after that. Getting back to the postmenopausal patient, you mentioned a variety of different agents or strategies that can be used, one of which was fulvestrin. Can you talk about what your experience is with that agent? Well, fulvestrin is an estrogen downregulator that is a very effective drug. I've been using it mostly as second or third line therapy, as I mentioned. I probably would start with an AI, probably come in with tamoxifen, although there are studies showing that compared to another hormone therapy, say compared to Arimidex, a second line therapy, the estrogen downregulator is at least as effective. It's not superior, but it's effective. So again, we've got a number of different combinations where I think a lot of research is headed at this point is that there are some suggestions that maybe combining an estrogen downregulator with an aromatase inhibitor may be a superior form of therapy. And it'll be very interesting to see how those studies end up in the metastatic setting because through the years, there have never been any studies showing that combinations of hormone therapies are any more effective than single-agent sequential hormone therapies. But maybe Tafazlodex gives us an opportunity to totally block the estrogen and estrogen receptor pathway. And one would hope that combinations of Tafazlodex and an AI may be superior. What about the issue of using an intramuscular therapy, fulvestrant, versus an oral therapy? Are there patients where you think there's an advantage to be using an intramuscular? Yeah, there are patients who certainly on oral drugs are noncompliant. And there are some patients who, for one reason or another, they have decreased swallowing function or they're getting a lot of side effects from the disease. They're somewhat cachectic or weak or older individuals may not remember to take their pills. So there could be a lot of advantage in selected patients for an IM shot or subcutaneous shot once a month administered by the nurse to ensure that the medicines are getting to the patient rather than these patients who have trouble complying with an oral pill daily may not be getting it. So I think there could be significant advantages of compliance for selected individuals. On the other hand, there are other people who prefer to take a pill themselves rather than having to have a nurse come into their house or they go to the doctor's office in order to take Faslodex or take a shot. So you need to individualize it, but there could be advantages both. What I've heard oncologists talking about, too, getting back to the beginning of our conversation, is in patients who already are coming in for bisphosphonates, since they're coming to the office anyhow, to be able to get the full vestrin. You know, that's a very good point, Neil. If the patient has to come to the hospital anyway, then there could be a major advantage of getting the chemotherapy, getting their bisphosphonate, or getting their Fazlodex and their bisphosphonate the same day in the hospital and not have to worry about taking the pills every night for the whole month. It could be a major advantage. On the other hand, if the patient doesn't have to come to the hospital for any other reason, coming in just for the Fazlodex injection may be a burden to them and a waste of an afternoon. Now, most of these patients, really all of them, I guess, unless they die of something else, who receive hormones or metastatic disease at some point, even if you maybe try two, three, four, whatever number of hormones, are going to just stop responding. And at that point, people start thinking about chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. How do you sort through the decision at that point in terms of choice of chemotherapy and whether to use the anti-angiogenic or anti-VEGF agent, Bevacizumab or Avastin? Yeah. Right now, we know that every patient eventually will become hormone independent. The disease will become resistant to hormone therapy, unfortunately. Then we would start chemotherapy on patients. 
Right now, I think most of us feel that single-agent chemotherapy sequentially is the way we go. There are very few studies showing a survival advantage of combination chemotherapy, and you run into more toxicity. So having said that, I would start a patient on single-agent chemotherapy. One can choose a taxane, one can choose a loda, and then go sequentially to other agents. But if you have a patient who has rapidly progressive disease, their clinical status is going downhill rapidly, they have extensive liver metastasis, and you're afraid that the patient may get into a life-threatening situation within a short period of time, one certainly would consider a combination of chemotherapy of their own choice, be it taxane and carboplatinum or some of the older combinations. That would be the main reason to choose a combination. The question of Avastin is a very important question, knowing the results of the Avastin taxane study is first-line therapy for metastatic disease, showing a significantly prolonged time to progression of disease, although not a survival advantage. I think Right now, I've used Avastin with Taxane in a few individuals, some patients with metastatic disease, again, primarily liver metastasis, and I've had a couple of really nice responding patients who had remissions of 12 to 18 months on the combination. Now, what about the patient who has a HER2-positive tumor? Well, we talked about the estrogen receptor in the 1960s, and we talked about the discovery of the HER2-new receptor in, in the 90s and the wonderful work of Dennis Slayman and Mark Pregram showing that Herceptin significantly affects the course of metastatic disease in HER2-new positive breast cancer patients, providing a survival advantage in the order of five or six months. So if I have a patient who is HER2-new positive disease and metastatic disease, I certainly would add Herceptin to chemotherapy for at least one line or two lines of chemotherapy. We now have another option in terms of lapatinib or Ticurb for those patients who have failed Herceptin in the metastatic setting, and again, some very nice results showing significant prolongation of time and progression. So we've got two options in metastatic disease, and we have a lot of exciting studies underway combining the two HER2-new blockers, both the antibody Herceptin and Ticurb, the kinase inhibitor. And it'll be very interesting to see if, as in some of the tissue culture work, combining both of those gives a better clinical effect. The other important thing is that the adjuvant use of Herceptin in some studies that have been done, Edith Perez has reported them as well as other groups, showing that adjuvant Herceptin can decrease the risk of relapse by about 50%, the hazard ratio of 0.4, 0.5. So in those HER2-new positive disease patients, adjuvant chemotherapy plus adjuvant Herceptin at the present time for a year has significantly impacted those individuals and can significantly decrease the chances of relapsing disease. So that's a major, major breakthrough in the prognosis of HER2-new positive breast cancer patients. And again, where that's going is into adjuvant studies comparing adjuvant Herceptin to adjuvant Lapatinib to the combination of Lapatinib and Herceptin. And one hopes that, again, blocking the pathway at two points in the adjuvant setting leads to an even better response rate and higher cure rate of patients than we have at the present time. But Herceptin and its blocking the HER2-new receptor has been a major advance in the last half dozen years in the treatment of breast cancer. What's the difference in terms of where exactly trastuzumab impacts the HER2 receptor in that pathway compared to where lapatinib does? Well, Herceptin is an antibody that attaches to the external domain of the HER2-new receptor close to the transmembrane portion. So outside the cell. Outside the cell, exactly, Neil. While lapatinib blocks the internal domain 
the kinase domain of the receptor. So it's blocking the same pathway, but at a different point, either externally, as you just mentioned, Neil, or internally at the kinase domain. At the present time, we don't have data that blocking one site is superior to the other, and it would be very interesting to see head-on comparisons of Herceptin to Lepatinib, but we don't have that data at the present time. But we do have some very provocative data for a number of groups, Jose Baselga and others have shown in vitro anyway, that if you block with both the antibody externally and you block the kinase domain internally, you may get a better anti-proliferative effect, and that's where some of the clinical trials are going, is blocking the same pathway at two different points, and hopefully that would be an advantage. What do we see in terms of side effects and toxicity of lapatinib and specifically lapatinib's capecitabine? Well, we know that Herceptin causes cardiac side effects in anywhere from 2 to 4%, 1 to 4% of patients. So Herceptin, one needs to do some very careful cardiac monitoring, especially when gives it along with adriamycin, cytoxin, and taxane in the adjuvant setting. We have data from a large number of studies with lapatinib showing in the adjuvant setting that lapatinib may cause significant clinical toxicity in 0.2 to 0.4% of patients. So it looks like lapatinib is less cardiotoxic than is Herceptin treatment, which is a good thing, because there certainly are individuals, and if you look at the Herceptin data, the people who seem to be at more risk of cardiac damage are older individuals, people who have underlying heart disease, People of any kind of cardiac compromise are at much higher risk of developing heart troubles with Herceptin. So having lapatinib as a second option for those people is very important, and it may end up, if I have a 75-year-old lady who's got some heart disease or some reason to worry about the cardiac function, I might choose to start her on lapatinib rather than Herceptin and run the risk of that. What about side effects of lapatinib, daily kinds of things? You know, the daily kinds of things are generally pretty well tolerated, as many of the kinases are or do, you run into some patients who develop skin toxicities, you run into some people who have GI toxicities, nausea, occasionally diarrhea. They're pretty infrequent in my clinical experience. Most people tolerate the drugs pretty well. If you do run into those toxicities, you can stop the drug, the diarrhea, you can treat with traditional remedies to treat diarrhea. So I don't have a lot of patients who stop lapatinib because of those other toxicities. It's infrequent.